Welcome back to the podcast history of our world. Chapter 28, Battle Royale, Assyria versus Babylon versus Egypt. King Kizkiyahu, better known as Hezekiah, became ruler of Judah around 715 BC under the protective wing of Assyria. He witnessed his Israelite brothers and sisters destroyed under Sargon's might, and he shared in their sadness. They didn't deserve this fate, but he couldn't help but think, you reap what you sow. The kingdom of Israel had long ago turned away from Yahweh to embrace false gods, rejecting the laws of Moses and the rule of the Davidic kings. It's a miracle they weren't destroyed sooner. Although, on further introspection, Judah's not exactly the land of piety and purity either. Would Yahweh allow the same horrors to befall his own kingdom? Well, not on Hezekiah's watch. He launched a series of religious reforms, spearheaded by the descendants of the Levites, to cleanse the land of any northern influence. That is, any worship that combined foreign gods with Yahweh worship. Religious authority is once again centralized at the Temple of Solomon despite it never having been restored after the previous sacking, and he even invites Israelites who survived the purge to come to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. It's easy to see why such a devout figure is looked favorably upon in the biblical accounts, but this does not tell the whole story. Ezekiel was not simply turning Judah into some spiritual passive state. He was looking to repeat history. When Judah was rich and powerful, the people were at their most pious, so if it happened before, it could happen again. Although let's talk about the year 705 BC and the accession of Sennacherib to the Assyrian throne. As with numerous other new kings, there are those who decide to challenge the young and untested ruler. Tyre and Sidon rebel, as do many Philistine cities such as Ekron, whose citizens even imprison their Assyrian puppet ruler. Hezekiah chooses to observe this, but to have his smiths and craftsmen begin producing weapons and armor anyway. This is also in addition to reinforcing the walls and towers of Jerusalem and the mining of a new water tunnel, uh, just in case something happens. Better to be prepared than not, but tiny Judah doesn't stand a chance, right? Even with all that. Well, Hezekiah continues playing nice with Assyria, even while he's being courted to join the resistance. Next up to schmooze the Judean king is the fervently anti-Assyrian king of Babylon, Marduk Apla Edina, who sends gifts, emissaries, and even doctors when he learns Hezekiah had become ill. The Chaldeans were back in power, and they inherited that pension for science. Their medical know-how helped restore a grateful Hezekiah back to good health, who in turn gives them a VIP tour of Jerusalem. Destinations included his palace, the storehouses of grain, olive oil, and wine, and of course Solomon's temple. A fairly successful diplomatic mission, but Hezekiah doesn't join their coalition. Of course, this doesn't stop others from trying to persuade him, and now the Philistines arrive with a request of the Judean king. Please keep the deposed ruler of Ekron captive in Jerusalem, far away from where he could act as a rallying banner for pro-Assyrian Philistines. This is not a fair deal. If he accepts the hostage, he'll anger the Assyrians. If he rejects the Philistines, well, it might not matter now, but should they and their allies succeed in the rebellion, how do you think they'll remember that one guy who wouldn't help them out? Tough spot. If only there was a sign, some indication of what to do. Well, right on cue comes the Egyptian army and their pharaoh Shabitku. He had decided to support the resistance against Assyria and had a massive army at his command. 
His younger brother, Taharka, was with him as well, having returned from their native homeland of Nubia with additional support, including the military contributions of both Kush and Ethiopia. Wow, this might be it. Assyria's going down. Feeling good about the situation, Hezekiah agrees to support the Philistines and preemptively cuts off tribute to Assyria. It's not a formal declaration of war, but it might as well be. Sennacherib's forces eventually arrive and confront that great coalition near the town of El Teche, and the outcome is difficult to understand. Shabitku took his forces home, claiming victory. But then again, Sennacherib also records a win, writing in his annals, I personally captured alive the Egyptian and Ethiopian charioteers and conquered El Teche and Timna. Well, who's telling the truth here? I gotta go with Sennacherib on this one. That's because there's evidence in those cities of destruction around this time period. Also because of what happens next, with Sennacherib sending a general to parley with the Judean king. Listening from atop the walls of Jerusalem, Hezekiah hears him out. Hear ye the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. On what are you basing this confidence of yours? You say you have counsel and strength for war, but these are empty words. Now on whom do you rely that you have rebelled against me? Ah, behold, you are depending on Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff which pierces the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who depend on him. To which Ezekiah replies, Oh yeah? Well, no, but he does scramble to bring out the imprisoned Philistine king and as much gold and silver as he can find to turn them away, even scraping the precious metals off the temple doors. This offering works for the general, and his army leaves, for now. But Sennacherib is not a forgiving man. After completing his reconquest of Ekron, in which he killed the officials guilty of their crime and hung their bodies on poles surrounding the city, the puppet king was put back in place, and now all eyes were back on Jerusalem. It wouldn't look good to allow treasonous subjects to simply purchase mercy, of course, and so in 701 BC, the Assyrians moved in to besiege Jerusalem. Not the first time war has come to the city, and certainly not the last. What exactly transpires next is a fascinating study of how historical truth vastly differs depending on the author. The only thing absolutely known here is that Jerusalem successfully holds out, and the Assyrians are forced to go home. How does the inconceivable happen? Well, for that, we need to compare our sources. First, from the account of Sennacherib. As for Hezekiah the Judean, he did not submit to my yoke. I laid siege to 46 of his strong cities and countless small villages and conquered them by means of well-stamped earth ramps and battering rams. I drove out of them 200,150 people, young and old, male and female, horses, mules, donkeys, camels, big and small cattle beyond counting. Hezekiah, I shut up as a prisoner in Jerusalem, his royal residence like a bird in a cage. Hezekiah himself, whom the terror-inspiring splendor of my lordship had overwhelmed, did send me tribute to Nineveh, my lordly city. Precious stones, couches inlaid with ivory, ebony wood, and his own daughters. A very heavy price to pay, and it sounds like that whole talk about not being bought off didn't really matter. Interesting that he doesn't say why the siege failed, though. Let's see what the Judeans have to say about it. And it came to pass that night that the angel of the Lord went out and smote in the camp of the Assyrians a hundred and eighty-five thousand men. And when they arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. 
There's no way Sennacherib had those numbers in his army, but this is a vastly different take. Did angels really swoop in and kill people in their sleep? No, but something must have happened that seemed miraculous. For that explanation, we turn to Josephus, who quotes both Herodotus and a Babylonian historian named Barossus. When Sennacherib was returning from his Egyptian war to Jerusalem, he found his army, under his general, in danger, for God had sent a pestilential sickness upon his army, and on the very first night of the siege, a hundred fourscore and five thousand, with their captains and generals, were destroyed. So the king was in a great dread and in a terrible agony at this calamity, and being in great fear for his whole army, he fled with the rest of his forces to his city, Nineveh. It's safe to say a terrible plague ravaged the Assyrians' camp. This kind of thing happens pretty often in history. As for the true truth, it probably won't appear. So for now at least, Judah is safe. Hezekiah's plan to restore the faith appears to have been a success. Sennacherib, meanwhile, returns to Assyria to deal with uprisings from the Babylonians and the kidnapping and murder of his son. After having gained nothing with the Egyptians, losing to the Judeans, and now having to bury his child, well, that pushes him past the breaking point. The full wrath of the Assyrian legions are unleashed upon ancient Babylon, as its citizens are slaughtered, the city is sacked, and the holy statue of Marduk is carted back to Nineveh an event comparable to the Philistine capture of the Ark of the Covenant. The blind pursuit for vengeance brought him no peace, though, as his citizens were disgusted at this wanton destruction of the city. Babylon was widely seen as a sacred jewel to covet, not to tarnish. Some of his surviving sons certainly felt strongly about this as well, so much so that in 681 BC, to assassinate him, either with daggers or by pushing a giant Lamassu bull statue onto him. Ouch. Sennacherib's heir and youngest son, Ershahadan, takes over and promptly orders Babylon restored to glory. Which, I'm sure, seemed like a great idea at the time, but almost 60 years after the city was reborn, the Chaldeans were back and drove out the Assyrians. Their king, Nabopolassar, expanded his realm into Sumer and eastern Arabia and became a close ally of King Huvakshra of the Mada Kingdom, better known as Syaxares of the Medes. Assyria had never recovered the power Sennacherib wielded, and the two allies sought to exploit that. It was agreed that once Assyria was defeated, they would distribute the land equally in the name of brotherhood and friendship. To really cement how serious they were, Princess Amidas of the Medes would marry the Babylonian prince Nebuchadnezzar. It's an arranged marriage of political convenience, but that doesn't mean there isn't any room for romance. Nebuchadnezzar would later commission a giant garden for his wife to make her feel more at home in Babylon, complete with ascending terraces and great pumps to keep the water flowing. Since this was built in the style of a giant ziggurat, his attempt at replicating the mountains of her Median homeland, the architectural wonder is later referred to as the Hanging Gardens. Uh, if it ever existed at all, of course. The Babylonians never actually recorded this happening, and there's no evidence it existed in Babylon. There might have been great gardens built by Sennacherib in Nineveh, but that's not really the same thing here. Oh well, it's still a nice little side note. Back to the war. The enormous army of the Medes and their Parsa, or Persian, subjects converge near the Euphrates and travel upstream, encountering little to no resistance from the Assyrian towns there, who actually pledged their support. While the Babylonians engaged a large Assyrian army in battle, the Medes swooped in and conquered Asher in 614, sacking it, slaughtering its inhabitants, and burning the holy city to the ground. Sounds like eye for an eye stuff, huh? 
Now, the demoralized survivors fled to Nineveh, where the current Assyrian king, Ashur-Ubalit II, had since withdrawn. The Babylonians arrive as well, along with Sumerian and Scythian reinforcements, and for three months their combined armies surrounded the city before finally, in 612, the walls of Nineveh fell. From there it was a bloody and violent slog through the streets up to the palace, where the armies failed to capture the Assyrian king. He had managed to fight his way out of the city and was riding hard to regroup in the west. Nineveh was sacked, but probably not destroyed. It still had its uses. The Assyrian Empire was crumbling fast, although the head of the serpent still lived. Two years later in 610, Ashur-Ubalit was safe in eastern Anatolia and sought help from an unlikely source, Egypt. Necho II had just begun his reign as pharaoh and was quite eager to prove himself, even if it meant working with a past foe. As the child of the sun god, Necho wished to extend Egyptian might beyond what his countless predecessors could only dream of. If this meant traveling the distance to fight far off Babylon, well, so be it. War it is. We need to jump back to Judah for reasons that will become apparent in a moment. Hezekiah's grandson Josiah was king now, and the faith of his people had waned following the days of that failed Assyrian siege. Worried that calamity would return, he sets out to restore the people's religious bearings. Without having to pay the Assyrian tribute anymore, taxes could now be diverted to restoring Solomon's temple, which had fallen into further disrepair. Here during its renovations, a high priest discovered a scroll described as the Book of the Law, containing the original words of Moses and thought to be lost for all time. Josiah took this as an omen to ramp up the rhetoric. Only a strict interpretation of Yahweh worship is allowed. All foreign influences are to be purged and destroyed. This meant not only smashing idols, but murdering worshippers and defiling their temples in a grisly way. Josiah's soldiers would burn the foreign priests on the altars in which they prayed, leaving their ashes and bones exposed and thereby making the place unclean. No doubt inspired by this onset of religious zeal, Josiah came to believe Judah could become so much more on the world stage if it wasn't constantly hemmed in from all sides. A passage in the Old Testament states that Judah drank from both the Nile and the Euphrates, suggesting that the kingdom was still paying some tribute or lip service to both the Egyptians and either the Babylonians or the remnants of Assyria. Well, one of them has to go, and in 609 BC, Josiah has made his choice. Necho was moving north to rendezvous with the Assyrians at the old Hittite city of Carchemish, located today on the Turkish side of the Syrian border. As he neared in on historic Megiddo, he observed an unknown army marching towards him, which upon closer inspection looked like Judeans? Necho called forth riders to deliver this message. What quarrel is there between us, O king of Judah? I have not come against you today, but against the house who wars with me, and God has commanded me to make haste. So for your own good, do not interfere, lest you be destroyed. Josiah ignored his warning and charged at the Egyptians, and then he was quickly turned into a pincushion by their chariot archers. Oops. Well, he was warned to stay away. Irritated and angry by this aggression, Necho makes a mental reminder, but meets up with the Assyrians to continue east, becoming the first pharaoh to cross the Euphrates. A meaningless accolade, ultimately, since the battle would be a disaster. Babylon's army was led by the prince Nebuchadnezzar, who had assumed power when his father became seriously ill. 
A natural commander, he was able to rout the Egyptians and extinguish the final glimmer of hope for the Assyrians. This victory made him king, and Babylon once again had an empire. Necho, on the other hand, was left to return to Egypt defeated and fuming. Babylon may have been the stronger fighter here, but if Judah hadn't interrupted his march, maybe he would have prevailed. Josiah might be dead, but it's not enough to slake Necho's thirst for revenge. The Egyptian army marches right into Jerusalem, which put up no resistance. Josiah's son, Yehoahaz, hadn't been king for very long, but Necho has him seized anyway to be bound in chains and dragged back to Egypt for who knows what. There's also a heavy tax levied on the people, sort of it's either this or death kind of arrangement. And to ensure that Judah stays obedient during this penance for Josiah's impudence, a puppet king is chosen to sit on the throne. This is actually Yehoahaz's older brother, Eliakim, although Necho renames him Yehoiakim, which means Yahweh raises up, intentionally selected either to reinforce his royal qualifications or to make mockery of the situation. Judah's subjugation under Egypt begins in 608 BC, with Yehoiakim firmly in their pockets. A new palace is constructed for him using forced labor, which there's some archaeological evidence for, but most of his reign is pretty quiet. Necho extracts tribute from his client kingdom, and Judah stoically bears its burden. A somber time, except you can always rely on the court prophet to raise a little fire and brimstone. Word has arrived that Nebuchadnezzar is on the move, seeking a rematch with Necho for who has the better empire, and that means trouble on Judah's doorstep. Only one empire is going to walk away from this one, and Yehoiakim's prophet Jeremiah, more doomsayer than prophet, is furious that the king is already rooting for Egypt. Well, yeah, no surprise there. But Jeremiah has had a vision. A terrible, nightmarish vision. Unless Yehoiakim renounces Egypt and submits to Nebuchadnezzar, the Lord will summon all the armies of the north under Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon to bring them to destroy this land, its people, and the surrounding nations. The land will become an object of horror and everlasting ruin, its towns the haunts of jackals. He will banish your happiness, the joy of the bride, the light of the homes. The country will become a desolate wasteland. To which Jehoiakim decided to support both. Doesn't anybody learn from history? Well, that's where we're going to wrap it up as we conclude our tour through ancient Israel and Judah on the podcast history of our world. 